Alright, so this is episode one of Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. Um, so today we're going to be going over the gospel. You've probably heard the gospel many times uh, in five-minute segments, or maybe you've never heard it at all. Um, I'm hoping that we can go uh, really, really in-depth and just try to see the gravity of the gospel because it's important. Uh, whether you've been a born again believer for you know hundred you know for a hundred years or uh, whether you're an atheist, so first we're going to go over. So this is the first episode, and so um, uh, we wanted to go over the purpose and then the podcast name. Um, so the name start the name is on the sh- or standing on the shoulders of giants. So in 1675, Isaac Newton wrote this in a letter to his rival, Robert Hooke. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. So we want to use the giants of the faith before us, whether it's, uh, you know, John Owen or or John Calvin um, uh, or Paul Washer, because we we believe that uh, the, the only reason we're able to do this podcast. Uh, the only reason we're able to understand the things we understand uh, is is by by standing on the shoulders of these great uh, reformers who've come before us uh, to, to to bring about these these great discussions over theology. Um, <clears throat> and then obviously we're we're only able to do that because of uh, the the power of of Christ. Okay, so the purpose of this podcast, uh, we want to edify, equip, and encourage the saints through sound, historic, reformed doctrine. We want to honor and give credit to giants of the faith who have come before us, and we want to give praise and glory to Christ and make him known. Okay, so let's get started. Uh, The gospel. So we're going to start off with the bad news. you know, the gospel means it's, it's the good news. Uh, it's the good news that's, that's proclaimed, uh, we believe, since the beginning of time. Um, and the, the gospel as we know it, uh, as, as brought about in, in the gospels. So in order to get the good news, uh, we have to start with the bad news. And I've got a, a quote from Paul Washer that kind of, uh, helps explain why I'm about to say the things I'm going to say because they're probably not popular things to say. They might be offensive to many people, uh, but uh, they're the most important things I could say in order to basically show uh, the the gravity of of what the gospel means. So the radical. So Paul Washer says the radical depravity of man and the heinous nature of his sin must be expounded so as to wound the conscience and lead men to Christ. So we're going to start off and say, you're not a good person. That's an offensive thing. Uh, You've you've probably not (laughs) heard that very often. Um, And if you have, it's probably from, uh, you know, some some enemy of yours or or whatever. Um, But but we think it's true of all people. Uh, and, it, and it's why we need Christ. So I've got some verses uh, to go through. So I am going to be in the ESV, um, the English Standard Version. 
flip with me to Romans 3, 10 through 11, and uh, I'm going, I'm going to flip uh, myself as well so that I know that other people have time. Um, okay. So Romans 3, uh, 10 to 11, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So let's start off, none is righteous. Uh, you, you know, you're not righteous, you're, no, you're not a good person. Uh, the standard of goodness is God, uh, the standard of goodness is, is the example of Christ. What it means to be good is, is to be perfect, is to be holy. To be righteous, you have to be without blemish. Uh, it, you know, if, if you've ever done anything wrong, you are not righteous because the standard of righteousness is perfection. So, so none is righteous. No, not one. The next one, um, no one understands. So I had the gospel uh, preached to me for, for uh, years in K-Life in church, you know, people have told me the gospel for years, but but I had ears that won't hear and, and eyes that won't see. Um, no one understands. Um, unless God draws you, uh, you cannot. You, you, you will have ears that won't hear. Uh, you, you might hear the gospel, but, but you, you, won't, you won't take it to heart. Uh, you won't understand and you won't put your faith in Christ. And then no one seeks for God. So we're, we're, we're going to get into uh, Calvinism. We are a Reformed group. So it's, it's uh, I'm Gil. Um, I've got two other guys doing this podcast with me. And uh, so we, we are all Calvinist. And um, so Calvinism in its most basic form is that is the idea that nobody would come to God on their own. No one is a good person and no one would come to God on their own. Uh, no one seeks for God. And so in order for somebody to come to God and put their faith in God, uh, God has to regenerate that person. He has to give that person a new heart and a new will and a new spirit. So, so that they will come to God in faith. Um, God has to draw that person. Um, because if it was up to man, if it was up to anybody on their own, no one would seek for God. Everyone would turn away. So, so, so here's, that's, that's, the, that's the big dilemma between Calvinism and what's called Arminianism. The Arminianists would say, that God leaves it open to anybody, and anybody who comes to God in faith will be saved, and then the others can reject God, but it's up to you. And we have in, in Romans that no one seeks for God. And so, so the reason that we believe being Calvinist or being Reformed is, is very important to the gospel message is because you have to understand the depravity of man. You have to understand that no one will come to God on his own, that, that we're not good people, um, that, that we turn away from God, and that we desperately need a, a new nature. We need a, a new heart, and, and we need God. 
and, and the distinction between Calvinism and Arminianism, I would say, and, and why I think it is most important, and it's, it's not often put in these terms, but in the intro to The Death of Death by John Owen, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, uh, I forgot who did the intro, but, but what he said was that Calvinism in the gospel, on the gospel says that God saves man, and Arminianism on the gospel says that God allows man to save himself through Christ. And so uh, I'm, I'm sort of going off on a tangent here a little bit. I'm sorry for that. Uh, but I think this is really important to understand what the Bible means when it says none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. So can you flip with me to Romans 1, 18 to 20? Uh, it should just be a page or two before. So here we go. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You'll commonly hear, so, so we're on the theme right now, I just want to make sure we're still on the same theme, uh, we're on the theme that, that no one is a good person, you're not a good person. Um, so we've already established, none is righteous, no, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. But, but many people would say, well, here's the thing, you know, uh, we have the gospel revealed to to the people in the United States and, and, and some in Europe, but what about what about the people in Africa or in South America, in, uh, in in rural Brazil, deep in the woods? You know that they, they don't hear the gospel. Uh, and and what about those people? They're good people too. Um, they deserve to hear the gospel. And and here's here's what Paul's saying in Romans is that God has revealed God has revealed His attributes. Uh, his eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world um, through his creation. And so that leaves everyone without excuse. Because, And so what do you say? You say, well, what happens then? If, if God reveals himself to everyone, you know, how are there atheists in the world? And, and how, are the, how are there all these other religions? And that's answered in, in Romans 1.18 in, in the first verse of, of what we read. Uh, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Um, I know that this is certainly true. Uh, when when I when before I was a believer, um, I would, you know, hear maybe I'd hear a sermon and I would think, wow, that kind of struck a chord with me. I'm gonna go read the Bible, and then I wouldn't, or or I would do something wrong and I'd feel guilty, but then I would do nothing about that. Or I would I would know that, that what I was doing was not fulfilling, or that maybe those maybe those uh, those those Christians and, and maybe that pastor had a point, but I would suppress the truth. I would suppress what was clear and obvious, because I'm not a good person. Because because my nature uh, is a human nature, and 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 that's true for everybody. The man man turns away from God. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're from 
Africa, whether you're from the United States, it doesn't matter where you're from, there's not a single person anywhere who is a good person, and everyone on their own turns away from God, everyone on their own uh, suppresses the truth, um, and it's up to God to, to regenerate and, and give man uh, a new heart and a new will uh, so that they will turn to him. So my, my uh, third uh, verse, my third and final verse uh, on the theme of you're not a good person is uh, John 8, 34. Uh, so let's get there. John 8, 34. Let's see. Here we are. So Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so the issue is not that, that, that we're, we're generally good, but that sometimes we sin. The issue is that, you know, human, human nature, human on its own, uh, or a human on, it, on, on his own is a slave to sin. It's not that, that sometimes he falls into sin. It's that really it's that he, all he can do is sin. It's that he, he's chained to sin. And that even if he feels guilt, even if he feels some sense of remorse for what he's done, Judas felt remorse after he uh, after he killed Christ, and he killed himself. But but he's a slave to sin. Uh, even when you even when you make a mistake and you feel guilt, man, you know man's nature is 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 the the nature of a slave to sin. And so uh, we can't do good. Uh, because we, we are bound to sin. But I think that I should go into a few reasons why this is extremely dangerous on its own before I get to the gospel and the good news. The reason this is dangerous on its own uh, is the common sentiment is that you might have done something wrong, but you are still a good person. So this is, I, I laid out three main reasons why I think this is very dangerous, why I think this idea is very dangerous, even before I get to the good news of the gospel. Uh, it, it brings a false confidence for Judgment Day. It leads to universalism, and people see God's judgment as unjust. So the first reason I think that this sentiment is a bad idea is it, it, it brings a false confidence for Judgment Day. I've talked to many people and said, hey, if you were standing before God on Judgment Day, and God says, hey, here's heaven and here's hell, why should you go to heaven? Many people have said to me, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. You know, I make mistakes, but it's not like I'm Adolf Hitler. It's not like I'm a serial killer, as if the standard of being a good person is, is that you, you haven't murdered uh, several people. Um, but they have a false confidence on uh, for Judgment Day, and they say, well, I'm going to put off thinking about what happens after I die because I know deep down that I'm a good person, uh, and, and, and God's, gonna, God's going to show grace to me because I'm, a, I'm generally a good person. And I know I've made my, my, my fair share of mistakes, but, but I'm good at heart. Um, so that's, that's the first reason I think that it's important that we lay out that, that you're not a good person. Uh, the second reason I think it's important is it, it leads to general universalism. And what I mean by universalism is the idea that uh, God saves all people. 
you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to, you know, you, you can be pretty much any person. And the, the general idea that people have uh, that goes along with this idea of being a good person is that, well, really, as long as you're not a serial killer or a crazy dictator, you're saved. And so they'll say, well, you know, uh, all of those people, uh, you, you know, they, they might have been atheists, but they're, they're good people. Um, or those people, they, they, they might subscribe to Islam, but they're good people. Or the Hindus, they're good people. And so how could a loving God send those good people to hell? Because they're just as good as we are. Well, here's, here's the thing. Maybe they are just as good as you are because you're not good. Because none of us are righteous. Because none of us are good before a holy God. None of us stand upright uh, before the standard that Christ has set. And so, and so my third point is people see God's judgment as unjust. They'll say, well, you know, the, the reason I can't go towards Calvinism is because how could God knowingly create people that he knows are never going to be able to seek, that, that are never going to be able to seek him and can't seek him uh, and then send those people to hell? Because how could God do that to somebody? God, God loves that person uh, and, and that person's a good person. You know, God couldn't just send that person to hell. Well, God's judgment is just. If, if outside of Christ, if you were to look at all of us, the just sentence for me and everybody else is an eternity uh, in hell. That's the only just judgment for all of us. But only through Christ, it's only a gift. If even a single person is saved, that's a gift because none of us are good. Uh, if, if any of us are saved... That is a great gift from God because none of us are just before God and all of us are deserving of condemnation uh, so we can rejoice uh, in the fact that God is merciful. And so in that same theme of, of you are not a good person, I want to go even further and say you have never done anything good. Uh, you have never done a single good thing. Uh, and I have several verses for that. Uh, so let's start off in Romans 3.12. Let's get back there. Okay. So Romans 3.12. We're going into the second half of the verse. Uh, no one does good, not even one. So we touched on this stuff, uh, the, the, the verses that, that went before, but... You know, the, the idea that no one is good, but it goes even further and it says that no one does good, not even one. Uh, there's not a single person who does good besides Christ. And so you might say, well, come on, I give to charity. You know, I've, I've forgiven several people who've wronged me. I've, I've uh, you know, I, I've been humble before or, you know, I, 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 I do volunteer work. Good for you. But not a single one of those things is done with absolute pure intentions. There's not a time where you've given to charity with absolute pure intentions. There's always a part of you that does that out of pride, 
you, 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 you're giving a sandwich to the homeless man and then turning your head outside the car hoping that someone's behind you that you know so they'll say, oh, now that Gil, he's such a good person. You know, I've, I've never done anything with absolute pure intentions. Um, you know, I've never done anything that is done fully uh, for the glory of God and out of love uh, for my neighbor. There's always a part of me uh, that, that, that has other intentions uh, behind that. And that's universally true according to Scripture. Okay, so now can you all turn with me to Isaiah 64, 6. Um, here we go. Okay. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Um, or, or you might you might have heard uh, another translation. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. When God looks at the so-called good things that we've done, they are polluted before Him. They are filthy before Him because they're tainted. You know, um, I think I think if I stood before anybody and I said, "Hey, you know, I've got I've got." Um, I've got I've got a glass of water for you, but don't worry, uh, it's, it, it only has a, a very very small amount of cat urine in it. I don't know, almost anybody that would just say, "Oh, okay, I'll I'll just drink that then," because it's polluted. It doesn't matter if it is even the slightest uh, degree polluted. It's 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 foul. Nobody wants to drink that. Um, and, and, and our good deeds before a holy God are the same. If, if it is even the slightest amount uh, tainted by sin, it is like a filthy rag before a holy God because God is perfect and the good things we have done are not. And then uh, the, the next verse I have, uh, go to Jeremiah 17.9, that's going to be uh, in the very next book in the Bible, um, Jeremiah 17.9. Okay, here we go. So Jeremiah 17.9, the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The reason why everything we do is sinful, even the so-called good things we do uh, are sinful, is because outwardly they might look like good deeds, but our heart is deceitful above all things. Our heart is desperately sick. You might outwardly be doing good things, but your intentions are not absolutely pure. They're not. And then the final verse, uh, Titus 1, 15 through 16, so back in the New Testament, let's get there. Here we go. All right, Titus uh, 1, 15 through 16. To the pure 
all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good word. So, you know, I, I had a good conversation with uh, the high school uh, head pastor at my church, and we were talking about this idea that you've never done a good thing. And he says, well, outside of Christ. And he kept hammering that point. And, and I think that is important because you can look in the Old Testament and David, who uh, cheated on his wife and killed the husband of this, uh, this, this person uh, that he was committing adultery with, um, was, David was called a righteous man, uh, a man after God's own heart. And the reason, the only reason that, that David could be called a righteous man is because of the work of Christ. Because Christ uh, had, had atoned for David's sins, even though Christ was, was to come, So the only reason that David could be called a righteous man uh, before a holy God was because of the atoning work and the imputed righteousness of Christ. Uh, only because uh, Christ had, had paid the penalty for David's sins and that, uh, that Christ's righteousness was imputed to, to David. And so the reason that you can... The, the reason that in, in Titus it says... Uh, to the pure, all things are pure, is, is that to a, to a believer, uh, when, when he does a good work, even when it's tainted by sin, Christ has atoned for that sin. And so this good work that's tainted by sin is no longer tainted because of the atonement of Christ. And so... And, and that verse also applies to, to different things as well. Like you could look at food and say, uh, no, no, no food is impure. Um, there, there are many, many aspects in which that verse can apply. And then to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. The unbelieving world, even their, their good, their good works are not done to the glory of God um, and, and are tainted by sin. And the atonement of Christ uh, is, is not in effect for their sin. And so every single thing that they do is defiled. Okay, so, so we got through the, the first section, uh, the bad news. And so we can say, so the conclusion, and this is unpopular to say, but it's true and it's necessary, is that you are not a good person. And you've never done anything good. And so, why, why is this very important? God requires perfection for you to be in His presence. Flip to Hebrews 12, 14 with me. Uh, it's in the next book over. Hebrews 12, 14. Um, And, and I'm, I'm going to use the uh, NIV version. The ESV says, uh, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, and the NIV says, Without holiness, 
uh, no one will see the Lord. It's pretty much the same. But um, anyway, the, the, the idea behind it is that God is holy, and he cannot be in, 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 pre, in the presence of, 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 of people who are wicked, because just as, just as water with dirt in it is, is no longer pure, uh, God can only be in the presence of holiness, because he is holy. And so we have to be holy as God is holy in order to be in his presence. And we've got a huge issue now because none of us are good people. None of us have ever done a good thing. And, 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 and we're in this huge dilemma. Uh, a second, a second uh, verse that I would use to, um, or set of verses that I would use to, uh, to, to affirm this idea is Galatians 5, 3 through 4. So, flip with me. Okay, Galatians five three three through four. I testify. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So Paul right now is talking to the Jews who want to be justified before God by the law. And they might think, well, we're righteous people. We might make mistakes, but we're good people. That's the common sentiment today. And what Paul is saying is, if you want to be justified before God, you are obligated to keep the whole law. And you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And the reason is because you cannot keep the whole law. You cannot. You cannot keep one aspect of the law. You can keep none of it. Because we can't do anything uh, with, with, with absolute pure intentions. And, and so we can, uh, can affirm this idea that God requires perfection uh, in order to be in his presence, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord, and you you are obligated to, to keep the whole law, and that you who, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, um, because God is perfect, and, and to be in his presence, you also have to be perfect, and so that's the big dilemma, is that none of us are good, we've never done anything good, and in order to be in the presence of God, we have to be perfect as God is perfect. So, so this is the big dilemma. Um, and so this is where the gospel comes in. This is the good news. Uh, Charles Hodge uh, says, The love of a holy God to sinners is the most mysterious attribute of the divine nature. And I think that's true. If you can look at your life and really say, Wow, um, you know, if, if you're elect and you say, Wow, uh, God has chosen me. That's that's the greatest mystery. There's there's no there's nothing in me uh, that the, that God would choose me. Uh, there's not no good that I have done that God would have favor on me. Uh, the the love of, of God is 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 a great mystery um, that I can't pretend to to comprehend whatsoever. And so let's start let's start with the gospel now. So here's the good news and and um, and. 
this is the, the uh, love of God. The first thing is uh, the virgin birth. So turn, turn with me to Matthew 1, 20 through 23. Okay. Here we go. Okay. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so what we have here, uh, the virgin birth, is, is, is the incarnation. You have the hypostatic union, which is the idea that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Jesus has to be man in order to atone for man's sin. Uh, and, and he has to be man in order to be able to die in the flesh. And Jesus has to be God so he doesn't die the moment he faces the wrath of God. Uh, and, and he has to be God in order to pay an eternal debt. So I want to touch on that really quickly uh, using the metaphor of one of my small group leaders. So, so if you were to go on, a, on the street and pick up just a random pebble off the street and scratch that pebble, you owe nothing. Now, if you were to go and scratch a Honda, you owe a couple hundred to uh, a couple thousand, somewhere between, somewhere in that range. I'm um, keeping it sort of broad. And if you were to, if you were to scratch a Ferrari, you're going to owe mm, tens of thousands. Now, if you were to go and scratch the eternal God, you owe an eternal debt. And so there's two ways uh, that that debt can be paid. Either you pay it for eternity or Christ, the eternal God, pays the eternal debt. So if there's a, an eternal penalty, it's either paid for it's either paid for eternity or it's paid uh, through the eternal God. Okay, so, so the first reason the virgin birth is important is uh, Jesus has to be fully man, and Jesus has to be fully God uh, in order to atone for man's sin. Second reason it's important uh, is that Jesus was not born into sin. Because Adam fell and sinned in the garden, every man uh, is conceived in sin. Every man is, is unrighteous before God in in everything that they do. And Jesus was not born into sin. He was he, the curse of Adam was not upon Christ because he was born of the virgin Mary, but he was conceived from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so so we've got the virgin birth covered. Now we're going to go into Jesus lived a perfect life. So turn with me to Hebrews 
Here we go. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, so Jesus suffered in the same ways that we've suffered. He felt the same pain and the, and the same sorrows that we have felt, uh, yet Jesus has remained sinless. He is still perfect and perfectly righteous. At every point that we fell, Jesus remained flawless. So Jesus was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross. Uh, so I want to go into the severity of the death on the cross, or, or really that entire day. Uh, so the different aspects that I want to go into, the abandonment of the disciples, the rejection from the Jews, the physical uh, suffering, and what I are, would argue is the most uh, severe punishment on Christ, the forsaking of the Father. So first we will start with uh, the abandonment of the disciples. Uh, we're going to be in Mark for this entire section, uh, so turn with me uh, to Mark 14. So Mark fourteen fifty. All right, here we are. So after the arrest of Jesus, well, actually, we'll, we'll we'll get some more context. So let's go to forty eight. And Jesus said to them, "Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled." And they all left him and fled. And so the they, in verse 50, they all left him and fled, is the disciples. The people that were with him the uh, time that Jesus was carrying out his ministry fled from him. So these people that Jesus had been, uh, had been with, his best friends, uh, and, and the people that were, that were by Jesus' side through everything, abandoned him. Uh, they, they fled. And there's, there's two uh, that are particularly pointed out in the scriptures. First, go to Mark 14, 43 through 46. So a little bit before this, uh, the betrayal of Jude, uh, Judas. Um, so let's start, 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. So, as a... As, uh, most people know uh, Judas betrayed Jesus uh, with a kiss, and uh, Judas ended up killing himself, um, and, and ultimately 
was not was not saved. He was not a true disciple of Jesus, but he was one of the twelve disciples. Um, so he betrays Jesus, and then somewhat of a parallel uh, narrative, Mark 14, uh, 68 through 72, uh, where Peter denies Jesus. And this is kind of interesting. You can see that throughout Jesus's ministry, Peter and Judas seem sort of similar. They both make mistakes. They both seem passionate. And, and they both deny and betray Jesus. Yet, Judas kills himself, and, and it would be better if Judas was never born, and Peter uh, becomes the rock in which Christ builds his church. So, um, 68 through 72, uh, this is Peter denying Jesus. Or actually, let's go to 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the, ro before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So we can see that one of the aspects of severity when it comes to the death and crucifixion of Christ is that the people that he was with uh, during his ministry abandon him. Okay, so then the, the next aspect is the rejection from the Jews. This is also in Mark, uh, Mark 15, 6 through 15. So now at the, okay, so it's, it's talking about, I'll give you some context. Jesus was already arrested he, he had been delivered to Pilate already, and, and this is now talking about Pilate. Okay. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man who you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So you have the chief priests and the Jews reject Christ. Over It's between Christ, who, who when Pilate says, Why? What evil has he done? They have no answer, and instead they shout all the more, Crucify him. 
They have nothing against Christ. Yet Barabbas, who was known to have murdered somebody in the insurrection, they, they choose Barabbas over Christ. And so the reason, the reason this is so severe uh, to Christ is Christ is throughout the Old Testament. Whether it's the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, you have the father who is told to sacrifice his son Isaac up on the mountain, and instead an animal was given in the place of Isaac. You have the father, God the Father, sacrificing his son Jesus Christ for the sins of the people up on the mountain. You have... You have countless narratives. In Isaiah, uh, it's prophesied that the coming Messiah would be uh, born of a virgin um, and that he would die on a cross even when crucifixion was not yet a thing. You have throughout the Old Testament this promised Messiah, this coming king uh, who would come to save the Jews uh, who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And, and when, when Jesus does come, they reject him. So now you have Christ who's been abandoned by his disciples. He's been rejected by the Jews. And, and now we're going to talk about the physical aspects of the cross. So the first, the first aspect I would like to talk about is uh, hematidrosis. This is, this is a condition. It's, it's basically uh, when you sweat blood. Uh, so this has only been recorded 12 to 14 times ever, and so it's, it's when somebody bleeds from every sweat gland. Each sweat gland has a small capillary that ruptures, and uh, instead of sweat, blood comes out of each sweat gland. And so this is, this is what happened to Christ. Uh, turn with me to Luke. Uh, Luke, it's Luke twenty-two forty-four. Uh, it's in it's in the next book over. Here we go. Okay, and so it says in Luke twenty-two forty-four. It says, "And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground." So, so what happened to Christ was hematidrosis, and so you might say, well. How did Christ not bleed out uh, before he, before he was uh, scorched and, and and died on the cross? How did he not bleed out there when he was sweating blood? And so in Israel at nighttime, uh, there's cold air, and so the the idea is that when when the cold air came, the vessels uh, were constricting, and so he did not bleed out. And so the next aspect is scourging. And so in scourging. Two large Roman legionnaires would have a stick with nine leather cords uh, with a lead weight and small pieces of bone. Typically, it, it's, it's a lead weight and small pieces of bone. There's, there's very, uh, various other things, but, but they would have uh, this, this weapon that, would, uh, that they would use to whip and what would happen is it would it would dig in and then tear the flesh, uh, and so they did thirty nine lashings, and the Romans believed uh, they could only do thirty nine lashings, and if they did forty lashings, a man would die, and so they stuck to thirty nine lashings to 
cause as much suffering as possible without killing a man. Uh, the Romans were excellent at torturing people. They, they came up with all sorts of things in order to maximize suffering and maximize em embarrassing whoever, whoever they were punishing um, without, without yet killing them until they wanted to. And so then you might say there, well, okay, so now he's been sweating blood and he's been lashed 39 times. And the, the, it's the same idea that uh, the, the cold air is what kept him uh, from dying of blood loss. Um, and, and we know that the, the crucifixion of Jesus uh, is, his, is a historical account. Whether or not you are a Christian, um, we know that Jesus did not die uh, before the cross. Okay, so the next aspect of suffering, uh, the next physical aspect, is the crown of thorns. So the thorns were one and a half to two inches, um, and the thorns were placed on the head, and they were tapped down uh, with with a wo with wood, um, and it would it could pierce the skull. And so, so so now you have, and and obviously that that is very painful as as well as. Um, a, a physical sign of, of, of sort of uh, mocking Christ, uh, calling him the king of Jews and placing uh, thorns on his head. Um, so you have hematidrosis, you have scourging, you have the, the crown of thorns, and then uh, now we get to the cross. So the first aspect of the cross is the nail wounds. So the in the wrists there are... Uh, important arteries um, that if you cut will will quickly cause people to bleed out. Um, so the Romans had to maximize suffering while uh, keeping somebody alive. So how would they crucify somebody? You know, if, if, if they pierced the arteries and somebody bled out, then crucifixion would not happen. So what they did uh, was they, they found the best part in uh, the wrist to pierce the nails so that it would miss the arteries, um, but maximize suffering. And so, you know, it's commonly portrayed in paintings that Jesus was, was uh, pierced in the hand, but if you look at the Greek in, uh, in the Bible, uh, the, the term can be applied really to the wrist and the hand, and so the the uh, way that the Romans would crucify was through the wrist because if somebody, some, the hand uh, cannot support the weight of, of a man and it would have torn through and crucifixion would not be possible. So they pierced him through the wrist um, and they drive it through uh, a ligament in the wrist that can support the whole body. And so to miss the arteries, they drive it through the median nerve which is the biggest nerve in the hand. Uh, I remember a story of uh, this climber who was was climbing through uh, this, uh, I guess it was like a a, a, cro a crack um, in in this in these giant uh, rocky um, underground, I guess like climbing area, and he ended up falling uh, with this large rock. And the large rock caught on his hand uh, as he fell, and so he was he was suspended there with this rock um, in between uh, this this 
sort of divide between the two rock walls. Um, and he was stuck there with his hand caught in between. And so he had, he decided to cut off his arm in order to escape. And so he breaks his bones uh, and he cuts through the flesh. But the nerves, uh, if, if you, if you, look through this this account of what happened when he cut through the nerves it was the most severe pain um, out of out of the whole ordeal he had his hands trapped uh, between the the rock and the rock wall for hours he had broken his bones he had been cutting through his flesh but when he cut through the nerves uh, it, it, it brings this this unreal sensation um, and so they they pierce the nail miss the arteries through the median nerve um, and this maximizes suffering while minimizing blood so that they can so that uh, the person that the Romans are crucifying can suffer without killing them um, and then the spike is also placed in the feet to miss the arteries but goes into the plantar nerve and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing any of these um, and it's it's the same idea. They can't, you know, it misses the arteries. It maximizes suffering, uh, but it keeps them from bleeding out. And so the cross. Uh, so so the so Christ carried the crossbar, uh, and and people think that usually it's portrayed that Christ will carry the entire cross. People did not do that. They would carry the crossbar, which alone was 150 to 200 pounds. So uh, after Christ had been flogged and had gone through hematidrosis, he carries this crossbar uh, to his own crucifixion. Um, so this, this wood uh, that, that he's crucified on, uh, remember that it's, it's rough, it's, it's, it's got splinters, it's unfinished, it, you know, it's, it's not smooth. <laughs> it's certainly not smooth. Um, and so the way... Uh, the, the, the cross kills a man is that uh, they, they are pierced in the uh, what, you, what's, what most people know as the crucifixion pose um, and it, it restricts the lungs so that people have to pull up on the nails and push up on the nail pull up on the nails of their hands and push up on the nails or in the nail and their feet and um, in order to breathe pulling up over and over again, causing total exhaustion. They're usually, they're usually naked uh, for humiliation, and uh, they, they have to pull up on, on the nails in, in their nerves um, in order to breathe. And typically what, what happened is they, they would stay alive for a very extended period of time, some even getting close to a week, and then what would usually happen is the Romans would have to break the shin bones so that they could no longer push up uh, on their feet and they would die from asphyxiation. But we know that Jesus died before uh, any bones were broken, uh, not only to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy, but we know that this is true because when the Roman pierced Jesus' side, water and blood came out um, and I don't know all the science behind it but when water and blood comes out of the lungs uh, it, it, it is an indication that that uh, death has already occurred and the Roman the Romans knew this so they did not break 
Jesus's shin bones. And so the so now we have uh, several of the aspects of the severity of what happened. We have um, the re the abandonment of the disciples, the rejection from the Jews, and then the physical aspects of the cross. But uh, the most severe uh, aspect of the death of Christ is the forsaking of the Father. So turn with me to Mark fifteen. 34, it's right back in the book, uh, right before this, Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus, cr Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, and I almost certainly just but butchered that, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, this could really <laughs> easily be used uh, to get into some sort of error with the relation of the Trinity between God the Father and Christ the Son. And I am not willing to, uh, to create such an error. Um, so... I chose to stand on the shoulders of a giant, John Calvin, and I'm going to read a quote on what he had to say uh, about this verse. So it says, Though the perception of the flesh would have led him to dread destruction, still in his heart faith remained firm, by which he beheld the presence of God, of whose absence he complains. We have explained elsewhere how the divine nature gave way to the weakness of the flesh so far as was necessary for our salvation that Christ might accomplish all that was required of, of the Redeemer. We have likewise pointed out the distinction between the sentiment of nature and the knowledge of faith, and therefore the perception of God's estrangement from him, which Christ had, as suggested by natural feeling, did not hinder him from continuing to be assured by faith that God was reconciled to him. This is sufficiently evident from the two clauses of the complaint, for before stating the temptation, he begins by saying that he betakes himself to God as his God, and thus by the shield of faith, he courageously expels that appearance of forsaking which presented itself on the other side. In short, during this fearful torture, his faith remained uninjured, so that while he complained of being forsaken, he still relied on the aid of God as at, as at hand. Uh, so, so I'll leave John Calvin's quote uh, to, to show that the Trinity was not broken and that faith uh, remained yet. Jesus can still say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I will. I, I, I think it's easy to argue that this is the most severe aspect of the death of Christ, the forsaking of the Father. And so now we have to say, okay, why did Jesus die? So we can say, we're not good people. We've never done anything good. Christ was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, but for what purpose? Uh, you'll commonly hear Jesus died for everyone. We don't find this in Scripture. 
turn with me to Ephesians 5.25. Okay, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So who did Christ die for? He died for the church. Who did Christ die for? He died for the chosen, the elect. He died for those that are predestined for salvation. He died for those who would put their faith in him. Uh, he died for those whom he would give a new heart uh, and a, a new will. He died for his sheep. So let's go to John 10, 11. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So uh, we have Paul uh, saying it. And if you want to say, well, you know, maybe maybe we're misunderstanding Paul. Uh, Jesus says the exact same thing. Uh, Jesus says that, that that he lays his life down for the sheep. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one more verse. Turn with me to Matthew 1. 21. Okay, so Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who did Christ die for? He died for his sheep. Why did he die? He died for their sins. We're not righteous. We're not good. We need to be perfect in order to stand before a perfect God. We need to be holy in order to stand before a holy God. So Christ had to die for the sins of his sheep, for the sins of his elect. Now, how, how can we become perfect in order to be before a perfect God, because we on our own are unrighteous. Go with me to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Okay, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So how are we saved? By grace, through faith. We're not righteous, you will not see God, everyone will turn away from him. And so God has to save us by grace. He has to make us alive. He has to give us a new heart. Uh, he has to regenerate us. We have to be born again, as, as uh, is laid out in John 3, because on our own, we would never seek God. 
Uh, so we're saved by his grace. And also, he paid, he paid the penalty for our sin, uh, and he does all of the work. Uh, he supplies repentance. He supplies the knowledge. He supplies the faith. He supplies everything. Salvation is entirely by the grace of God. Entirely. Salvation is holy through God. Uh, and, and it's important that we make that distinction and instead of saying, well, it's up to you to believe or not believe uh, because we know that no one seeks God. Salvation is by grace. And how is, how is, how is this perfection uh, attributed uh, to somebody? What, what is the uh, condition or the uh, sort of key by which it is attributed? Through faith. Uh, and this faith comes from God. It is not it is not of us, but is supplied by God. Uh, it is no doing of our own. So if we're saved by grace through faith, and this is how we receive the perfection, what does it mean to have faith? Because I think that's a great misunderstanding. You have lots of people who say, oh yeah, I just live entirely the way I want to live because I believe in Jesus and I'm saved. Or you'll have lots of people say, well, you know, I've prayed the prayer. Um, I'm, I've done all that I need to do. You know, I, I'm, I'm saved. I've got my assurance in Christ. It, it, you know, I'm okay. We need to make a distinction between a historical belief and a saving faith. So go with me to James 2. I'm going, I want to go uh, do an entire uh, episode on faith uh, and, and, and this distinction between a saving faith versus a historical belief, uh, but I will go over it quickly here. So James 2, 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so this is the same idea that's already been laid out, that if you want to if you want to be saved by the law, you've got to keep the whole law. And if you fail at even a single point, you're guilty of all of it. And you cannot be saved by the merit of keeping the law. And, I, and why I'm saying this right now is because some people will try to use James 2 and say, oh, so James is saying we're saved uh, through works, or we're saved partly through faith and partly through works. Uh, and that's not what James is saying, because James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So we know that J James does not believe uh, we, we, we can be saved partly through faith and partly through works, uh, as laid out by many denominations. Uh, many Catholic churches would say, you know, you, you have to believe, and you've got to be baptized, and you've got to confess, and you have to take the Eucharist, uh, and, and you have to live a good enough life, and you've got to do all of these other things. The The Church of Christ uh, typically will teach that you have to be baptized in the Church of Christ and believe, or, or if it's not that you have to be baptized in the Church of Christ, they say, well, yeah, you're saved through faith, and you've got to be baptized. And we say uh, you're saved by grace through faith, uh, apart from works. Uh, no, no works uh, can be added to faith because then salvation is no longer through faith alone, uh, but it's through faith and works. And James says, whoever keeps the whole law that fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. But that I'm, I'm, I'm getting off of the, the core uh, idea of what we're going on right now, saving faith versus historical belief. Um, 
So go with me. It's James 2, 18 uh, through 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what, what James is saying here is you believe these historical facts about, about God or about Christ. You believe that, that Christ was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for sins, uh, and that, that if you believe in him, you can be saved. Okay. Even the demons know all of those things are historical facts, and they shudder. They, they have better doctrine than, than anyone any, any human on this earth, they, they know all of the facts, yet, yet they are separated from God. And so what is the distinction? Historical faith is knowing that the facts about Christ are true. Historical faith is knowing that the God in the Bible is a true and living God. Okay, that's a historical belief. You know that those things are facts. Now, saving faith is trusting in Christ, is trusting in God the Father, is trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, saving faith is, is hearing the promises in Scripture, uh, not just the promises of salvation, but the promises uh, that, that living the, the life that Jesus taught to live is, is good, that waiting until marriage is good, staying sober is good, and, and I'm not saying here that that I, I, I am great at this. I'm not saying that that uh, that this brings any merit. But what I'm saying is a saving faith trusts in Christ. A saving faith not only trusts in the promises of salvation, but promises that the things that Christ says in, in, in the word laid out uh, by God, the Holy Spirit, in scripture, th those promises are true, all of them. Um, so we have saving faith versus historical belief. Uh, and, and I would call everyone to, to examine their faith and see if they historically believe that the facts about God are true or, or if they truly trust, uh, trust in Christ. Um, and then, uh, so, so we're, we're carrying on with this idea you're saved through faith uh, apart from works. And people will say, well, in the New Testament, after Jesus died, you're saved through faith. But before that, you're saved by works. Uh, turn with me to John 8, 56. John 8, John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham of the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came, saw this coming Messiah and had his faith in him saw the day that the Messiah would come and was glad. Turn to Genesis 15, 6. All the way in the beginning. All right. Genesis 15, 6. 
and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. When Abraham believed, righteousness was attributed to Abraham, because Abraham had faith in the coming Messiah, and we have faith in the Messiah who has already come. We are saved uh, the same way as anyone has ever been saved, by grace, through faith, apart from works. Uh, but let's, let's look at verse 10 of Ephesians 2. Uh, For we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if you have a saving faith, you will produce good works. If you have a saving faith, uh, you are God's worksmanship. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works. You will produce good works. You will bear fruit. Uh, good trees do bear good fruit. You will you will uh, see a difference in your life. There's a there is a stark difference between the life of a believer and the life of an unbeliever. Unbeliever sins and feels guilty and continues sinning and then feels guilty and continues sinning. The believer might sin and feel guilty and do it again and feel guilty. He will strive against that sin. It is against his nature. He cannot continue in that sin because it just pokes at him and pokes at him until he has to turn from the sin. So examine yourself. Uh, I would encourage you to read 1 John. If you think that you are saved, read 1 John. Uh, look at your faith soberly. See if you have a saving faith. And uh, look at what your life is producing uh, and see if it, it, it looks like the, the fruit of a saving faith. Um, okay, so Mark 1 15. Uh, turn with me to Mark 1 15. Uh, we are getting close, but I wanted to clarify a couple things that I think are, are very important in order to understand the gospel because these are things that held me up for a long time. Okay, so Mark 1 15 says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For a very long time, I looked and said, Well, I've got to repent and believe. And I was always told, Well, repent means you need to turn from your sins. Uh, you, need to, you need to clean up your life and then come to God in faith, and then God will save you. Well, I had a big issue because I could never clean up my life. I could never be good enough to stand before a holy God. I could never be sinless. I was always tainted by sin. Um, and so I was like, well, what does this mean? I need, to, I need to turn from sin because every time I turn from sin, I find another point of sin in my life and I can never turn from all of it. Uh, and, and I honestly uh, was, was just like, well, how does this make sense? And then other people are saying, well, you're saved through faith alone. And I say, well, well, don't I have to repent and believe? Like, what, what is going on here? Do I have to clean up my life? And am I saved through faith alone? Or what does repentance have to do with all of that? Um, and I think that if I can clarify the, the definition uh, of, of the Greek metanoia, and if I can, uh, and I can show how you are saved through faith alone, uh, but with a faith that, that has other 
uh, aspects um, that, that arise with it, uh, then, then this can become more clear. So repentance uh, in Greek is the word metanoia, which means a change of mind. Um, so turn with me to Matthew 3.8. Uh, Matthew 3.8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So we can see that repentance is an inward change. It's, it's an inward change of mind. And what comes out of it is bearing fruit. What comes out of it is, is a, a change of life or a turning from sin. That's, that's the fruit of repentance. But repentance at its core is, is a change of mind. Um, and John, turn with me to John 16, 8 through 9, so we can sort of see well, what is this changing of mind that takes place. John 16, 8 through 9. And when he comes, so, so this is uh, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, concerning sin, okay, this is, it's going to go past nine actually. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. A change of mind needs to take place concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because we need to see the gravity of sin. We need to see that, uh, that, that when, when, we are, when we have not placed our faith in Christ, we are in grave danger. And we need to see the, the gravity of our sin. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. You won't see. They, they no longer will see the uh, example that Jesus have, had set of righteousness. And they need to see that they themselves are not righteous. And then concerning judgment, because if, if their sin is as serious as Jesus says it is, and Jesus' righteousness is the example, then judgment day is a very, very concerning thing for all of us. Because we can say, well, I'm not good. I am sinful, and I can never meet the standard uh, that Jesus set of righteousness. How am I going to stand on Judgment Day? And so you need this change of mind in order to see that the good news is good. In order to put your faith in Christ, uh, you, you need to understand uh, the, the, the severity of, of your condition. Um, and so, so now we have sort of the understanding of repent, or the, the understanding of the definition of repentance. It's a change of mind concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, and uh, and 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 it bears the fruit of repentance is is cleaning up your life or turning from sin. Um, and so, then we have okay. So so how, what about faith alone? You're saved uh, through faith alone, but it sounds like you need this change of mind, or it sounds like. You need this repentance to take place. Well, then how is salvation through faith alone? So I've got a quote by D. Patrick Ramsey. He says, Suffice to say that the doctrine of faith alone does not mean that faith is alone at the moment of justification or that other graces can't be antecedently necessary. The point is that faith is the alone instrument of justification and pardon. So the alone instrument of justification is faith. 
But faith is not by itself when it arises. Uh, repentance is, is necessary for faith to arise, but repentance is not the instrument of justification. And we can also keep in mind that repentance is a gift of God. Repentance comes from God. We cannot produce repentance on our own, just like we cannot produce faith on our own. Um, and so I've got, an, I've got a verse, go to Romans 10, 14 to, through 15, to show that there are things that necessarily arise that are antecedently necessary, uh, but are, are not the instrument of justification. So Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So no one can believe in whom they have not heard. So what's, what's, an, what's something that's antecedently necessary to, to a saving faith? Having a certain understanding that, that, that you need uh, salvation, that you need redemption. How can you put your faith in Christ and say, well, I'm putting my faith in Christ uh, for, for my salvation without knowing that you need to be saved or without knowing that there's, there's something wrong uh, and that you need redemption? This isn't possible, and so we can say that uh, faith is the alone instrument of justification and pardon, uh, but repentance is antecedently necessary, and it does not mean that you need to clean up your life before you come to Christ. It is a change of mind that is produced uh, through the Holy Spirit. Um, and then, what, what does this all mean? Okay, so none of us are good people. You know, we've never done anything good. Christ was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on, on the cross for our sins. Um, and we need to put our faith in him uh, in order to be perfect because in order to be in the presence of God, you have to be holy as God is holy. And so what does this faith do? Uh, it, brings, uh, it brings about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Uh, that is what that is what it means uh, to be to be justified before God. It means that Christ has atoned for your sins, uh, in that Christ uh, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you, and that you can stand before a holy God justified. So turn with me to Second Corinthians five or five through twenty one. Second Corinthians five through twenty one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in Christ, or when your faith is in Christ, you become the righteousness of God, because Christ's righteousness is attributed to you through faith. And then Matthew, turn to Matthew 22, 9-14.
Matthew 22, 9 through 14. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In the place, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, if you look at parallel uh, verses that, that say that use the same phrase, uh, this is a clear reference to hell. And um, so, what what can we see? So in order to be in in order to be a part of the wedding, uh, which is uh, the the wedding of the the church and Christ, uh, you have to be uh, clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness. And if you try to stand before a holy God without being clothed uh, with Christ's righteousness, you will be cast away into hell. And so this is this is obviously a a very uh, severe warning uh, that that Christ uh, brings about in this parable. Um, and he, he's teaching that in order to stand before a righteous God, you have to be righteous and that none of us are righteous. Uh, so just for a very quick summary, no one is good. No one seeks God. We have to be perfect in order to stand before a perfect God. And so this is a, uh, a, a big uh, issue. And so Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He atoned for the sins of the elect. And he promises that if you put your faith in him, uh, you will be clothed in his righteousness and you can stand before God. Um, so this is the uh, first episode. Uh, it is a long version of the gospel message. You know, I, I've, I've been all over the place, but uh, we, we want to show the fullness of Scripture. We want to have references in the Old and New Testament and show uh, that the things that we are teaching are, are true according to Scripture. Um, we hope to, to, to proclaim uh, whatever uh, is the message of God, whether or not it's popular, and, and we, we hope to use Scripture uh, doing that. So, you know, we might be flipping back and forth, um, but but we hope to do what's honoring and glorifying uh, to God through this podcast. So I want to pray really quickly, uh, and and that will be it. Um, and so I hope that, that, that y'all have enjoyed it, and I hope that uh, you might have taken something from this. But uh, let me pray. Uh, Lord, I ask that, that you use this message uh, to, to bring about uh, whatever is, is glorifying to you and to carry out your will. I hope that anything I've said uh, that, that is not uh, true uh, will fall on deaf ears. 
I, I, I hope that, uh, that you can uh, use this uh, for your purposes. Um, and uh, I thank you for all that you've done and for this uh, glorious gospel uh, that, that has been laid out in the scriptures. Uh, thank you. Uh, amen.